both of my children were born while I was a pastor. I was a pastor for 15 years, and our son, our oldest child, was born about three, four years into that 15 years. And as his due date approached, it of course fell to me to make sure that I had my bases covered. As most people who work would have to do, they'd have to think about contingency plans for coverage of responsibilities and so on. And as his birth became more and more imminent, I began to do my part to figure out who I could line up, not only to provide coverage for pastoral emergencies, but of course I also needed a few people to preach during the Sundays when I would be away. My call agreement, and this was not that long ago, this was 2008. So think about that when I tell you my call agreement specified that for me, as the father, I would be afforded a whopping two weeks of parental leave. The things, the, the, the circumstances would have been different if I was the birthing person, but there was a discrepancy there, and it would be the same when our daughter was born as well. Thankfully, call agreements have evolved a bit since that not very long ago moment. At any rate, I knew that I would need people to cover for those Sundays, people to preach for those Sundays. And so I did my due diligence. I, as, as the birth seemed to become more and more imminent, I even told them specific Sundays that they would most likely need to cover for. And, lo and behold, things worked out in, in a fairly predictable, a, a fairly, let's say, even convenient manner. Our son was born middle of the week, and I was able to still go back and preach that next Sunday. I had already prepared to do so. And then the next two Sundays, the people that I had given a heads up, people I had asked to cover those next Sundays, were able to go about their work for those times. And then, you know, a whopping two weeks later, I was back. So that was good. When my daughter was born, she was a little less considerate. And those who know, the listeners who actually know our daughter, might think, well, yeah, that, that sounds about right. So our daughter decided she was coming 
on a Sunday morning. It was it was early. It was around five or six in the morning, I think, when my wife said, "Oh, this this is happening very soon." And so I scrambled. Fortunately, I didn't need to do a whole lot of scrambling because as it happened, the particular Sunday that our daughter chose to make her presence known happened to be the Sunday when my congregation and the United Methodist congregation across the street were holding their annual joint worship service, and it just so happened that it was the other minister's turn to preach. And so, as a matter of very fortunate happenstance, everything was already covered for me. But I had also, I had also lined up a few people gave them a heads up. Hey, this is going to happen pretty soon. And will you be able to fill in the next two Sundays once again, when after the birth and they agreed and, and everything was fine. And I enjoyed my time at home both times. Of course, enjoyed my time at home with our newborn little friends. Now, the reason that I'm sharing this with you is because this week, leading up to today, the Sunday when this episode is released, February 18th, the tables were turned. I was approached by a friend and a colleague and actually a former co-worker. We worked together at my most recent congregation. I was the pastor and she was the youth worker. She has since begun a family and is working at a different church, has been ordained and so on. And she has been pregnant and her due date is fast approaching. And so the other week she texted me and she said, hey, with we, this, this is the date, this is the actual date when, if nothing happens, we're, we're going to induce, but I am scheduled to preach on February 18th, and just in case, if something were to happen before that induction date, would you be able to come up? and fill in for me. To which I responded, of course, I know how this, I know how this works. I know the, the uncertainty of it. I, I totally get it. And I would be happy to do this. I would be happy to prepare for this possibility. Well, it turns out I was not needed. I texted the Friday beforehand and, and I said, so how are we looking? And she said, Th things are going fine. It doesn't look like anything's going to happen. 
but thank you so much for being willing. And I was fine with that. I was actually, there was a little part of me that was relieved. I'm sure you can hear in my voice that I'm actually dealing with something. I've been dealing with a little bit of a respiratory sinus thing. I've been dealing with the crud since about the middle of this week. And so I, I admit a little bit of relief that, that I wouldn't have to end up making this trip and I could continue to recover at home and, and that would be fine. But here's the thing. I still wrote a sermon. I did my part. I, I prepared. I, I went through all of the usual preparation that I usually do, and I wrote a sermon that the fine folks of this congregation will not get to hear. However, you get to hear it. Anyone who listens to this episode gets to hear it. So, here's what I did. This was for the first Sunday in the season of Lent, which was exciting to me just on its own, preaching during Lent. Lent is a special season for me, and so I was glad for that opportunity. And I decided I was going to focus on the gospel text, a very short little text from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 to 15, where a lot of stuff happens in just a few verses. Jesus is baptized. Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness afterward. And then John is arrested. And then Jesus begins his public ministry. And I have included the, the text, a link to the text, in the notes for this episode. So that was my chosen text for this Sunday. And I am going to go ahead and preach my sermon to you, the faithful listeners, based on Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. And I decided to title this sermon the Wild Beasts. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Contemplative Podcast. When our son turned probably two or three, somewhere in there, it made sense to us that we would get a zoo pass for a time. We live close enough 
to the Akron Zoo now, but also back when we had this idea that getting a regular zoo pass as just something to do when thing when we had a free moment, when we had a free day, just seemed to be a good option for us. If nothing was going on and he seemed a bit restless, then we could just pile into the car, strap him in, take all of the necessary extras for the time, for the age, such as a stroller and, and, and whatever else. We would pile all of that stuff into our car and we could drive the relatively short distance into Akron and then take him around to see the animals. It was a convenient thing to do for a day. And I must say that at the time, I was, I was off on Mondays, every Monday, and throughout the summer, even into the fall, and I'm talking some late, relatively late fall Mondays, like into October, maybe even into November, if there was a Monday where there was not much going on and it seemed like he was just not interested in napping and, and some other things, I would still, we would still pile into the car and we would wander the Akron Zoo for a few hours. And I actually thought it was kind of nice in those late fall days because there was hardly ever anyone else around. The, the usual crowds that you get in the summer, they weren't there. And so we could have a nice, peaceful day looking at the animals, wheeling around, doing what we wanted. Now, I have to say, and if you're familiar with the Akron Zoo, you will know this, it's definitely not a humongous zoo. It's not nearly as big as the zoos in Cleveland or Columbus or other major municipalities, but it's still a good experience, and they've actually worked very hard since we started going to make it an even better experience. But there are, nevertheless, plenty of animals that we enjoy there. You walk in, and the very first animals you see are the penguins. One of our favorites, as a whole family. You go in, and you, you get to immediately see the penguins standing around, thoughtful, lost in thought. Or some of them, of course, will be swimming around and you, there's the glass there so you can see them swimming past you. I personally enjoy the bat enclosure. We all love the big cats, all of them. The tigers, the lions, the snow leopards. And one of my other personal favorites are the red pandas. I always love to stop and look at these red pandas that I just want to scoop up and take home. But of course, nobody ever lets me. 
And then as an added bonus, there's an old school carousel at this zoo as well, which our daughter always insists she has to ride at least once, but usually more often than just once. In general, you think about the appeal of a zoo. Of course, what it basically is, is you get to see animals up close that you wouldn't normally be able to see. And of course, you get to do so in a safe way. They're on the other side of glass. There's usually in the outdoor enclosures, e even as an added method or, or means of safety, there, there is a, a gap that has been placed in between where the animals get to wander and where you are able to observe them. So they're, they're on the other side of these several safety features, and you get to safely observe them. You can take pictures, you can take selfies, and of course they're in a place that, to varying degrees, replicates their environment. Some well done, some less well done. But, but even so, you get to see them, if they're up and moving and active, you get to see them wander and climb and do all of the typical things that they, or at least some of the typical things that they may do elsewhere. And even they seem somewhat tame. A lot of them, a lot of the time, it, they, they just seem to be resting. They're in a resting state. The, the lions, I'm not sure I've ever seen the lions at this zoo wander around. Usually, they're just, they're just chilling on top of a large wooden platform. And occasionally, they'll perk their heads up. Maybe they'll yawn. And that's about it. And it lures you into thinking thoughts such as, would it be so bad to pet them? They don't seem, they don't seem that like they would harm me. I could wander in there. They're, they're just lying there. Haha, <laughs> lying there. They, you could just wander in, give them a quick scratch behind the ears. They, they it doesn't look like they'll mind. Of course, this is not a good idea. It seems that way from your position of safety. But overall, it still would not be a very good idea. That image of safety is not altogether accurate regarding what they may be capable of if they don't appreciate your presence. When we meet Jesus in this modest passage from the Gospel of Mark, 
he has some encounters that feature no glass windows, that feature no illusions of safety. Now, Mark as a whole never lingers on one thing for very long. If you want more detail, if you want more substance to your stories about Jesus, then you read any of the other Gospels. Mark, however, Mark is going to give you the bare bones of anything that he is sharing with you. So in these couple of verses in this passage, we run through a number of events in very short order. Jesus, we are first told, is baptized by John the Baptist. We're given no conversation between them. There's no objection by John the way there is in some of the other Gospels. It's just Jesus was baptized by John. That's it. And then as Jesus is coming out of the water, we are told the heavens are torn open and a spirit, the spirit, descends like a dove. And there is this voice, this divine voice that says, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. And then immediately we are told that same spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. God is well pleased with Jesus, but also, here, I'm kicking you out. I'm kicking you into the wilderness. This is your next thing that you have to do. It's an interesting juxtaposition of actions and of events that we could spend time on if we wanted to. But we're going to keep moving the, just in the same way that Mark does. So Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness where we are told several things happen. And it's one way to read this part is to think that maybe these things happen one after another. But, but it's probably more accurate to think that all of these things are happening at the same time. We are told in quick succession that Jesus is tempted by Satan. Again, if you want more details on what that might have looked like, you will have to rely on some of the other gospel accounts. Jesus is also with the wild beasts. And finally, angels waited on him. Angels provided for his needs. We're told he does this for 40 days. And at the end of this 40 days, John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus reemerges and begins his public ministry by, among other things, proclaiming the good news, which is, we are told, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. There are some things worth noting 
about what Mark tells us regarding Jesus's time in the wilderness. The first thing is that overall, Mark is concerned with the overall wilderness experience in as much as he is concerned about any one thing. That appears to be what he is most concerned about. Like I said, other Gospels will focus on the temptation. They will present specific things that Jesus was tempted to do, as well as the way that he responded to them. We are given entire mini-conversations between Jesus and his tempter. But in Mark's case, being tempted is only one of a handful of things that he wants to tell us about Jesus's experience there. He wants to talk about the wilderness in general, which is by definition not a safe or orderly or predictable sort of place. It's, it's kind of implied in the name. It starts with the word wild. This is not a place where you can anticipate much. And of course, the 40 days for Lent is inspired by the 40 days that Jesus spent out here in this wild, unpredictable sort of place. So again, the things that Mark shares with us about this wilderness time, that Jesus did face temptation. We're not told specifics about it. We're not told specific things that he was tempted to do or to not do. We're just told he was tempted. We're also told that he was afforded a certain level of protection or provision by God. The angels waited on him. He was not truly 100% left to his own devices out here. Again, what did that mean? What did that look like? We're not told. But the thing that interests me, at least this time around, reading this passage, is the wild beasts. We're told Jesus was with the wild beasts. Again, this is not a safe zoo-like environment. There were no cages. There were no gaps dug between Jesus and these animals. There are no safeguards. Jesus is just out there alongside them. Now, I had to look up. I had to, I was curious, what kind of wild beasts might Jesus have encountered? What, what possibilities were there for experiences with wild beasts? And among other things, I found that he could have encountered lions, bears, deer, 
deer are deer will put up a fight deer will square up if i i have had this experience which i'll talk about some other time but deer are not necessarily just the little you know bambi type creatures that that we think of them as being i digress oxen ostriches ostriches are ostriches can be nasty crocodiles antelope and hippopotamuses hippos are again <laughs> you want to stay away from hippos so there were some dangerous creatures out here with jesus and so, again, with there being no cages, no enclosures, there was a need for constant vigilance. There was a need, occasionally, to steer clear of certain areas, even the areas with deer. Again, I'll tell that story some other time. And I wonder, if nothing else, it's an interesting thought experiment I wonder if one of the temptations that Jesus faced was to Disneyfy these wild creatures. You think of certain movies, certain classic Disney cartoons, where the the main character just hangs out with these wild creatures, and they actually like. They, they perform tasks for them. They, they just snuggle up next to them and, and everything is fine. I'm wondering, it's fun to think that maybe one of the temptations Jesus faced was to be all snow white next to them. So, nevertheless, this is all to say, the wilderness is not a paradise. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of a place like the Garden of Eden. It is a place where you face danger. And in Jesus' case, maybe that was part of the purpose. It was a place to face danger. It is a place to be honest with ourselves about what we need about our dependence upon others, including God. And so here we are, at the beginning of our own 40-day journey. And it's a worthwhile question. It's always a worthwhile question. Here at the beginning of this season of Lent, to ask, to sit with the question, why do we observe this? Why do people choose to observe a season like this? And the answer always or usually includes certain words. The responses usually may include some, if not all, of the following words. Preparation self-reflection, penitence, humility, repentance, centering. We use words like these to say that this is a time 
to examine our lives, to examine who we are, and to examine our relationship with the divine. And we do that in part, this journey features, is of a certain nature, that it includes these words that, that I said, that, that I shared, humility, repentance, centering, penitence, that, that it's a journey where we examine our own selves and our own thoughts, our own habits, our own practices, our own preferences, and to take stock of what may be good for us and what is not so good for us. It is a time where we are invited to mimic Jesus's own wilderness journey in even the smallest of ways. It's a time to give ourselves pause and to recognize our own needs as we anticipate the stories of Holy Week. And so one way to observe this time, one way to do so, to examine ourselves, is to face our own wild beasts. We're called to leave a place of safety, to remove the glass, and take a true and honest look at what we're struggling with. Whether it's disordered attachments, or doubts, or fears, or hesitancies, or shortcomings, or temptations. What's out there? This is a time to ask that. What's out there? Or really, what's inside us that we're avoiding? And what, as these weeks go on, might we want to lay down at the cross? What in our lives is in need of resurrection? Now, I admit, that's a lot. It's a lot to ask. It's a lot to think about. It's heavy. It's daunting. But... It's not all bad news. In fact, the good news is much bigger. This proclamation that Jesus begins his ministry with, the kingdom of God has come near, that means what Jesus is getting at, what Jesus is preaching, is a new realm and an ever-present experience of God's love and forgiveness and presence. And that presence includes the wilderness, where the wild things are. That presence includes times when we struggle, when we ask questions. And the good news, even during a season like Lent, is that we don't face our beasts alone. We never have. And we never will. And part of the celebration that comes after Lent is that even those parts of us 
experience resurrection. This good news, as we sit with our wild beasts for a time, will carry us through both this season and every season after. Thank you for listening to the Coffee House Contemplative Podcast. I'm Jeff Nelson. You can find more about my writing, including all my books, at jeffreyanelson.com. You can also find me on social media, Jeffrey A. Nelson on Facebook, and I'm at Bold Roast Rev on Instagram and elsewhere. Have a great week.